Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, th- we thank you, God, that, that you can take a room in a shopping center and you can make it into a sanctuary that is holy and glorious to your name. Uh, but Lord, we know that it is you who abides with your people. And God, we thank you that, that you have been here with us this morning and pray that you would continue to do so uh, through the preaching of the word of God, that, that you would speak to us. Lord, you know where each and every one of us are. You know the things that, that occupy our minds and the things, Lord, that are consuming us even now. But Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear the words of life, that you would speak to us. And we pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to apply these things to our hearts this morning. We thank you, Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, kids, I don't know if you remember the last time that you went to the eye doctor. And when you did, most likely he had you sit in a chair and he had he shown a chart up on the wall and he said, look at that chart. And while he did that, he puts this machine over your, your face that has all these different lenses in it. And, and he says, look at that chart through these lenses. And he says, which is more clear, one or two? And he would flip different lenses and, and you would say, oh, one's more clear. And then he'd say, okay, well, how about this one? Is number one or number two more clear? And, and you would tell him which one was more clear. Well, I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes it's very obvious which one is clear. I mean, it's like the difference between day and night. But other times... I have great difficulty, and this may just be the way that my mind works, but whenever I have trouble telling the two, I think, well, what if I chose the wrong one? He's going to pick out my glasses based upon that choice, and I'm going to have to live with it for the next three to five years or however long I have my glasses, and so I, I hope I get it right so that I can see more clearly. Well, you know, in, in, in much the same way, you know, we live in a world that is confusing at times, and, and yet we need to see the world around us and to understand uh, what it is and what's going on. But sometimes it's hard to know as we encounter different circumstances whether this is better or this is worse or, you know, much the same way with the lenses. Is this good or is this evil? And sometimes it's not, sometimes it's very obvious, you know, that this is good and this is evil. And other times, though, we, we wrestle, we, we struggle to know uh, what is good and, and what's not. Sometimes maybe something is good, but something else is better. And the only way that we'll be able to understand these things that we experience is if we look at them through the lenses of God's word. And so Solomon continues to show us what is going on in the world around us as he looks at things uh, as clearly as he can. And as we come to this chapter in uh, chapter 7, we see that uh, it, the tone really changes a lot. You know, where Solomon has been talking about different topics and, and he's been asking questions. Uh, now, the book of Ecclesiastes begins to sound a lot like the book of Proverbs, does it not? As a matter of fact, that's why there are those who believe that Solomon is, has written the book of Ecclesiastes. And particularly, if you look at the first 13 verses of chapter 7... You, you, you have these lines of poetry that, that occur. 
And and as a matter of fact, some you know, as you read that at first glance, you, you sometimes begin to think, well, how does all this fit together? I don't understand this. And I have to say, for a preacher, it makes it really challenging to try to outline sometimes. But but if you look back at chapter six, you'll see that really what Solomon is dealing with in chapter seven is a question that he brought up at the end of chapter six. Look at verse twelve. And you see that Solomon says, For who knows what is good for man while he lives in the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? So he asks the question, who knows what's good? And the answer, of course, in the text is that, that God does. And, and, and he tells us that God tells us in that chapter 7 that what's good for us is to live wisely, not to live as a fool. And, and if you just take a moment and sort of scan down through those 13 verses or so, you'll see that he uses the word wise or wisdom or fool or foolishness at least a half a dozen, maybe seven times, maybe a little bit more to, to see that what he's doing in these verses is contrasting wisdom and foolishness. And he says that wisdom is of great value, that that's how we are called to live. As a matter of fact, if you look down at verses 11 and 12, he says, Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. And so he talks in these verses and uh, contrasting uh, the wise and the foolish in three areas in particular. And first of all, he does it in life and death in verses 1 through 4, and then in constructive criticism, verses 5 and 6, and then in God's providence, verses 7 through 10. So let's look at these this morning if we could. He begins sort of with a, a double comparison in, in verse 1. He said, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. And you listen to that and you're like, what? Good name? Oil? Death? I, yeah, this doesn't make sense. But, but the, really the first part of this proverb is similar to things that Solomon has said elsewhere. In Proverbs 22.1, we read that a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. And favor is better than silver or gold. And, and here what Solomon is doing is comparing a good reputation to the rich aroma of exotic fragrances. And in biblical days, what uh, we would call fragrances or perfume, uh, were very valuable commodities. I mean, if you think back to the New Testament, to the time when the woman came to anoint Jesus before his death, remember, Judas got upset. Now, why did he get upset? He said, Jesus! Do you not see what she's doing? I mean, she's taking this perfume and she's pouring it on you. Could this not be sold for a year's wages and given to the poor? Now, he really could care less about the poor. He was stealing money out of the money bag and he just wanted more money in there that he could steal. But the reality was that just shows us how expensive these fragrances were, a whole year's worth. I don't know too many husbands that go out and buy their wife perfume that cost them a year's wages, but uh, but that's how valuable this was. And the preacher here, though, as he's looking at this, I think we need to understand that he's not saying that having great riches or valuables is bad, 
but simply that a good reputation is better. It's something that's uh, more valuable. And in the same way he said that a good reputation is better or worth more than great riches, he is saying that death is better than birth. So it's not that birth is not good, but actually death is better. And, and he goes on and he explains this further in the following verses. Look at verses 2 through 4. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now, Matthew Henry, in his commentary, summarizes this very simply and puts it this way. He said, it will do us more good to go to a funeral than to a festival or to a party. It will do us more good to go to a funeral than to a party. And, and the reason is, is because at a funeral, we're confronted with the realities of life. We're confronted with the fact that life is brief. And we're reminded that all of us will die and, and, and the preacher wants this truth to weigh heavily upon our minds. You see, going to a funeral teaches us not only how to be wise in the way we live, especially if we live our life in light of the fact that one day we're going to die, but it also prepares us on how to die. But if you go to a party, you know, parties are not made to cause us to think, are they? You know, I mean, when was the last party that you went to that you thought, hmm, this is very intellectually stimulating to go to this party? Usually parties are go to have fun, to sort of forget things, to enjoy things, but not funerals. And so Solomon is driving home the point that those who are wise live today in light of eternity because they are, are, are they're thoughtful about what will happen even after this life. But, but think about the prevailing attitude of our culture toward death. You know, we've, we've done everything we could to sanitize life or sanitize uh, ourselves from death in, in our lives. You know, it's, it's increasingly rare for people to encounter dead bodies. I, I remember when I was first in the ministry, we had a secretary whose father was ill. And she was very concerned. And I said, oh, I, I can understand why you're concerned. I, I'll be praying. And she goes, no, you don't understand, Pastor Rick. She goes, I've never been to a funeral in my life. This was a young lady who was married. She said, I've never been to a funeral in my life. And I'm afraid that if my dad dies, I won't be able to go to his funeral. Because I just don't know that I could bring myself to do that. But, you know, that's becoming more and more common. I mean, I think you could very easily meet someone who's never seen a casket being lowered down into a ground. I mean, even the word death we oftentimes don't use anymore. Instead, we talk about those who are departed or passed away, who are not with us anymore. And, uh, you know, it used to be that at one time people would die in their home with their loved ones around them. And now oftentimes, I would say the majority of people die in hospitals, uh, sort of isolated and, and removed. And, and even funerals are, are sort of shifting, unfortunately, even in the church. Uh, they, they're giving away more to private ceremonies where just the family gets together and has a graveside funeral. And, and even if uh, a person does have a, a funeral, oftentimes the focus is more upon the eulogies and celebrating their life here on this earth rather than 
uh, thinking about eternity and destiny. Now, there's nothing wrong with thinking about a person's life, but it seems like that has almost trumped the gospel and the hope oftentimes that we have in Jesus Christ. But one place to get that wise heart is at a good funeral. It's where we recall that our own days are numbered, as Psalm 92.12 says, and, and it recommits ourselves to making every day count for eternity. And so uh, you can sort of see that wisdom or that folly in a person's life in terms of what they give themselves to. Do they give themselves to thoughtfulness to this life, or is it something where they're just giving to enjoying life and, and really not thinking seriously about the, the life that the Lord has given us. The second we see is in the constructive criticism. The preacher introduces a new topic that sort of talks about that sense of wisdom and foolishness. He says, It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Now, the point that he makes here is very simply this, that wisdom's rebuke is better than folly's laughter. It's better to have somebody rebuke you in wisdom and, and heed that than it is just to give yourself to be around people who you can laugh with and who will never challenge you. It's good for us to receive correction from people who are wiser than us. This is not probably what most people want to hear. I mean, uh, kids... I just want to tell you, be thankful for your parents. I mean, I know that not always are you thankful, but you really, really, really need to be thankful for your parents. Young people, I know you're growing older and you're developing your own ideas and you're thinking about how you would do things when you move out of the house and stuff. And sometimes you may look at your parents and you think, and they just don't understand. But I want you to know that they are a blessing of the Lord. You know, just like children are a blessing of the Lord, Parents are a blessing of the Lord, particularly parents who love the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, your parents are not perfect. I can tell you that. Matter of fact, they'll tell you that. They're not perfect. But they seek to do all that they can to give you godly counsel. And sometimes they rebuke you. And sometimes they challenge you in ways that, that you need to hear. And a, a, a wise child, a wise young person, would heed that rebuke. You see, wise people value correction, but fools want to be entertained and to laugh. And I love the picture that he gives here. I mean, just, just think about this. This is basically a pot that you want it to boil. And so you build a fire and you put that pot over that fire. But it just so happens that instead of using wood or coal or something that's going to burn for a while, you use thorns. And thorns, what do they do when they burn? They just sort of pop. I think it's interesting because, I mean, even the, the sound of the thorns popping sort of reminds you of this sort of this joyous laughter. You know, so Solomon just uses great word pictures to sort of convey this. But these this brush, these thorns burn so quickly that the fire really doesn't have any effect on the pot. It really doesn't cause it to boil. It just sort of quickly goes out. And that's sort of the effect of the fool's laughter. Although laughter may come easily, Oftentimes, it dies out quickly. And he who laughs the loudest will not necessarily laugh the longest. And Jesus gives warning to this in Luke chapter 6, verse 25. He says, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Of course, Jesus is talking about the fires of the final judgment when the foolish laughter will perish. 
Well, this fits in well with sort of the serious attitude that Ecclesiastes teaches us about that we are to have about life and death. Uh, some, some people uh, seem to try to make it through life simply by laughing their way through. They're just sort of jokesters. You know people like this. You probably work with some like this. That they're always sort of cutting up and, and they're not being serious about things. And, you know, for them, life's just sort of a party you know, it's like, come on, they're just telling you, lighten up, don't be such an old fuddy-duddy. You know, but they oftentimes don't give themselves to thinking about the reality of life. You know, someone who cares enough to confront us and to tell us the things about life are truly uh, a value and a blessing from the Lord. And listening to constructive criticism of a godly friend can, can save our souls. And, and such a person would probably tell us the things that Solomon has been telling us. That living for pleasure and working for selfish gain is just a striving after the wind. He's telling us that I think God has given us a time for everything, a time to live, a time to die. But they probably would tell us that all, also that money doesn't satisfy. And in short, they, they will teach us not to live for today, but to live for eternity. So my question for us this morning to think about is, is are we people that listen to wise counsel? Or do we think that, that we know better? You know, or, you know, someone maybe is challenging us about something. You know, is it something that, that we are giving our hearts to? Or is it something that we're thinking, oh, no, no, I'll, I, I know better than that. So third, we see that he talks about God's providence. That wisdom manifests itself through understanding God's providence. Um, after he gives a brief warning in verse 7 about the danger of power, then he goes on to look uh, to tell us to look ahead and take a long-term view of life. He says, better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Now, when he talks about the end of something, he's talking about the result or the outcome, the end product, okay? So better is the end product of a thing than its beginning. Uh, many things that uh, do not seem all that promising at the beginning oftentimes turn out well. This is always true of anything that is blessed of God. I mean, all's well that ends well, we say in life, and we know that that's not true, but in God's gracious plan, it is true. We read in Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for his good. Now, we don't always see it from our vantage point, at least maybe not in the moment of time that we are in. You know, but, but it does work out this way. And we oftentimes see this principle worked out in our lives. It may be that uh, you have given yourself to just even seeking to be obedient to the Lord, you know, very taking a step by step to maybe uh, uh, pray more or maybe you sought to habitually give, uh, be more generous in giving to God's kingdom. And, and you've seen the Lord work in those things. Or maybe you see in your family where your son or your daughter, you know, is maybe one who is maybe less mature. Maybe someone who you thought you wish would love the Lord God more, but you don't see that love right now. It might be very easy to be discouraged, but let me just encourage you, God's not done yet. That we never know how the Lord 
is going to work. I mean, even in church planting, you know, where there's a where there's a vision and there's prayers of maybe just a handful of people like us here at Kirk of the Plains. We never know what the Lord is going to do with this church. And it may be that he will produce a congregation of hundreds of members. Who knows? Maybe out of this church will grow many congregations all over the state of Kansas. We don't know. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. And seeing the full scope of God's plan guards our hearts against pessimism and being negative against the future. Um, But it also helps us to avoid another error that we read in verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. You see, there's also a temptation that we have not only to be pessimistic about the future because we're looking at the present and it doesn't look like what we want, but there's a temptation here of nostalgia for the past. You know people like this, right? Maybe you're a person like this. You know, you talk about the good old days. Uh, You know, people who want to go back to the way that things were. I think part of that is is that they don't, they, they oftentimes forget some of the bad old times that were in the good old days. I had a preacher friend and I know I've shared this with you before but he said you know he says people talk about the good old days but he said I grew up in the wintertime having to trudge out in the middle of the night to go out to the outhouse to go to the bathroom and he said they can talk about the good old days but he goes that those they weren't all good old days you know he said they were some rough times too and I think we forget that but but Solomon warns us here against not falling back into that so Uh, You know, we need to be careful that rather than looking forward that, you know, we're not looking back. And even the Israelites did that at times. I mean, I think about the time when they rebuilt the temple and they laid the foundation for the second temple. And there were there were some old timers there who, who had seen the glory of the original temple. And and they saw this foundation and they were weeping. Others, the younger generation, saw this foundation. They were excited to have the temple and they were rejoicing. But what was happening was, is we see that those who had seen the original temple, it did, they saw that the glory of the, the second temple wasn't as great and they were sad. And there's a sense in which they ought to do that. But little did those Israelites know that God's plan did not end in the second temple. His glory was not going to just abide in the second temple, but he was going to send Jesus Christ, who is the living temple, to come and to open a way for, for, for millions of people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so we need to be careful that instead of longing for the better days in the past, we should look, for, uh, we should look to the future, that God is still working out his plan and therefore the best is yet to come. Matter of fact, Robbie and I used to go to a church and the preacher used to always say that. I mean, and he signed every letter this way. He'd say, our greatest days are just ahead. Our greatest days are just ahead. And I used to think, oh, come on, Pastor Dave, you know, but it's true in many ways. God is, is at work and we need to be careful. We need to look, be looking forward and not backwards. And, and I think this is good for us who are Reformed Christians. Because I think we can sometimes think if we could just go back to the days of the Puritans. If we could just go back to the days of the Reformation and everything was just good then. And, and we would just be much more holy church. And people would love the Lord Jesus Christ more. 
And those things are good. The Lord has given those things to stir our hearts and to encourage us in our faith. But we ought to also understand that God is still at work as much as his church today as he was then. And we need to understand, uh, as Paul says in Romans 13, 1, that our salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. And so we must take a godly perspective of what's happening in the world. And we must wait for God to work out his plan, believing that the best is yet to come. And so looking at life uh, this way requires the attitude that the preacher talks about in verse 8, where he says that patience is better than pride. Rather than arrogantly assuming that we know best, we should humbly submit to God as we wait for him to work all things out. And this applies not only to our sanctification in areas that we still need to grow. It might be that we need to hear this word about our marriages or maybe about family problems when we're tempted to give up rather than press on. It applies even to the ministry and the church when we wish that other people would catch the same vision that we have for God and, and what he can do. Brothers and sisters, the bottom line is it applies to any area in life where we think that we know best and wish that God would hurry up and do something when in fact he wants us to hurry up and wait on him because he is at work and he is doing something and we must be patient. And I think one of the easiest ways to tell whether we really trust God's timing or not is to see how angry we get when God doesn't do things our way. You could call it the sin of exasperation. And, and the preacher gives us this command in verse 9. He says, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. You see, the connection between anger and folly uh, is well stated in the Bible. I mean, Solomon talks about it. We could look at a lot of different verses. Let me just read a couple to you. In Proverbs 14, verses 17 and 29, he says, A man of quick temper acts foolishly. And then he says in verse 29, he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. But here Solomon has a particular anger in mind and he's talking about the rash anger that explodes whenever we think that something's not happening as quickly as it should. Now, usually when this happens and we get frustrated with others, we're like, I'm not angry. I'm just frustrated. I just wish people would get going. I wish they would just... And, and we feel so justified. There's a sense oftentimes of righteous indignation that we see clearly and yet others do not. But Ecclesiastes sees our anger for what it is. It is that sinful folly, that, that spiritual immaturity and an underlying mistrust in the sovereignty of God. And as soon as we start to get impatient, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to keep us from this folly. As we, as we come to this chapter, the, the preacher is teaching us the right way to look at life and uh, to live life as well. And we are to do that through the eyes of wisdom. As a, let me read verses 11 and 12 again. He says, Wisdom is good with an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. Now, the preacher knows, we just talked about in the last chapter about how money doesn't last forever. But as long as we do have money, 
it is useful in providing some protection, oftentimes against many of the practical difficulties of, of daily life. And if you don't believe me, just think back to the times when you were young or you were newly married and you didn't have much money. And then those times now, maybe, whereas you're older in life, that you do have a little bit more money, you do feel a little bit more of that protection. But similarly, in the same way, wisdom is a protection for the soul. It helps us deal with the reality of death. It guards us against the folly of rash anger. It helps us take a long view of life and what God is doing to trust in His providence, even when we don't understand but he even says in verse 12 that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. You know, we can uh, portray a facade of wisdom on Sunday mornings and live a foolish life throughout the week. And we might think that we're getting away with it. Maybe even it's some of you kids or, or young people. You come to church and you're like, okay, I'll play the part. I'll do what I'm supposed to do. I'll sit here. I'll be quiet. I'll make my parents happy. But your foolish ways will will find them way it will will be exposed. The Lord will show us where our tr- our hearts truly are. You see, true spiritual wisdom gives us spiritual vitality as long as we live. And when it comes time for us to die, it leads us to everlasting life. Turn, if you would, to to First Corinthians. Chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I know the last time I preached on wisdom back in the earlier chapters of Ecclesiastes, I, I read this verse, but uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. It says, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Our wisdom comes to us only through Jesus Christ. If you look at verse 30, it says, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. As we come to the Lord Jesus Christ and as we walk with him, he is our wisdom. He not only shows us what wisdom looks like, as one seminary professor I had said, he said, Rick, you you know, the the Jews constantly sought to understand what wisdom would look like if it were personified. He said, but we have that in Jesus Christ. We see what that wisdom looks like in his dealings here upon this earth. But Christ is more than just an example about wisdom. He, He is our wisdom. And he is the one who causes us to die more to the folliness of, our, of ourselves, the, the foolishness, the, the sinfulness of our own hearts. And as we come to him each day, you know, and even if we come to him knowing that we have been foolish, we can ask for forgiveness. And he gives us strength each and every day. And so we can come to him uh, seeking that wisdom and uh, he will work that out in our lives. This isn't a sermon that says go and try to be wiser in the way you live. It is a sermon to say go and to turn to Jesus. Look to Him. And as you walk with Him, as you abide in Him, as you meditate upon Him, as you commune with Him each and every day, each and every week, 
you grow in that wisdom. Um, let me just close with this illustration. There was a young man by the name of Charles Ward who exhibits this kind of wisdom. He was actually a Union Army officer in the Civil War. And he wrote in one of his letters home, he said, I hope I may come home again, but life here is uncertain, which it was. And, and for him particularly so, because just a few days later, he was mortally wounded in, in a, a wheat field in Gettysburg. And he didn't die immediately. He lived for about a week or so. And then, and then he died. But before he died, he, he wrote one last letter to his mom. And this is what he said. He said, Dear Mother, I may not again see you, but do not fear for your tired soldier boy. Death has no fears for me. My hope is still firm in Jesus. Meet me and Father in heaven with all my dear friends. I have no special message to send you, but bid you all a happy farewell. Your affectionate and soldier son, Charles Ward. You see, is he, is he lived in Christ? He also died in Christ. And if we live in the wisdom that is ours in Christ, we will follow his example by laying death to heart and looking ahead to what God has planned for us in Christ. We will live wisely and die well. Please bow with me if you would. Our Father, we thank you for not only sending your Son to die for us, but also to be our power and, and our wisdom. Uh, we thank you that uh, you have given us uh, the privilege to, to walk with you, Lord Jesus, uh, for you to walk with us, actually. Uh, Lord, to keep us firm to the end. We pray that we might grow in wisdom. That God, that we would forsake the, the foolishness of our lives. And Father, I pray for uh, us today as, as we struggle with these things, as we struggle with wisdom and, and foolishness in our own hearts. We know that you will complete that, Lord, which you have started in our lives. But Lord, I pray particularly for those that may be here today or that's maybe not here today that might hear this message especially those, Lord, who have given themselves to foolishness, whose hearts are not warm towards the things of God, who they have no interest in you. God, we know that you have the power to make them new in Christ. And I pray for them, Lord Jesus, that they would come to faith in you and that, Lord, that they would not only be warm towards you, but, Lord, they would be on fire that you would be there all, that like the Apostle Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Oh Lord, I pray, uh, Father, for all of us in this church, that we would go to heaven, enjoy you forever, and that Lord, that you would stir our hearts to go and to tell those that we know who do not know you. That Father, that you would lay the burden upon our hearts to pray for the lost and those that do not know you, to pray expectantly, God, that you will save them. We know, O oh God, that you are great. And we pray that the wisdom that you give to us may be a witness to who you are and that it may bring glory to your name. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
please stand if you would. And let's sing number 446.